Hi, ladies. So glad y'all are here tonight. I have the privilege of getting to pray for our sweet friend, Judy Wimberly, who's going to teach us all about the priestly garments and the sacraments. So if y'all would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that it is your desire to dwell with us. And because you love us so much and you want to dwell with us, you've given us instruction on how to come into your presence for the Israelites way back when. And we are super, super grateful that um, we don't have to go through this whole process to get to you, Lord, that um, you saw fit to send your son to save us. So thank you, Lord, for initiating that relationship with us. I pray for Judy as she teaches us this lesson about the priests and all of the sacrifices. Um, I pray that you would be clear through her. Help us to learn your truth so that we know you more and that we are changed for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, thanks. All right, we'll get started. I want to open tonight by looking at the last two verses of our passage. So that would be chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, because they are really the summary statement of our biblical passage for tonight. So God is speaking here, and he says, I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So what we see in this summary statement is the clarity of the fact that God wants to dwell among his people, and he desires to be their God. He desires this personal relationship with them. Now, right now, we're in the section of Exodus, which covers chapters 25 through 31. And this is the revelation that God gave to Moses up on the mountain those 40 days and 40 nights for the tabernacle. Now, when we get to chapter 32 through 34, there'll be this interlude of Moses coming down from the mountain, and he sees what's happened, and he deals with it. And then we get to chapter 35 to the end of the book in chapter 40, and that will cover the tabernacle actually being built. Are you all getting a feedback back from talking, from my talking? Maybe I'll move that mic- microphone down a little bit. How about that? Does that do better? Okay. So what we have here is the plans for how a holy, holy God could dwell with Israel, his people, and be their God. Last week, we learned about the place where he would meet them. And now this week, we're going to learn that the place is going to need some way to implement the purpose of the place. I can't get rid of that. God desires to come to the people and dwell with them. But ever since Genesis 3, there's been this big problem of sin. And so we have the people, 
we have the holy God, and we have sin in between them. So how can God get sinful man from that bronze altar at the beginning of the tabernacle back to the most holy place of his presence? So for God to come to the people and dwell with them, there's going to have to be a mediator. And God has a plan for this. Now, my husband at one point in his business career was in business for himself. And I helped him in that business. And our business was that we placed temporary uh, employees at companies. Are you bringing me something else to try? I'm wondering if I just speak to you. Could you hear me? I wonder if I take this off. Let's see. Can you hear me? No. Okay, that won't work. Ah. All right. I don't know if it's bothering you, but I keep hearing this. It's fine. Okay, so I'll just ignore it. Okay, so anyway, we would supply temporary employees, and we referred to them as temps. And many times, a company would wind up hiring one of our temps to a permanent position. Then we labeled that employee temp to perm. And so that phrase was very common in our household, temp to perm. And at one point, we even named a cat that because we had this cat temporarily at our house. And then we gave it as a gift to someone, and they pretty rapidly gave it back to us. So we named that cat temp to perm. Well, God's plan is a temp to perm one for how this problem of getting him to dwell with his people could be solved. So that's what we're looking at tonight. We're going to look at the temp part of the plan, which God gave. We're going to try another one. Okay. All right. right where the microphone is this way sounds better to me does it sound better to y'all okay we're good So tonight, we're going to look at the temp part of the plan, which God gave very clear instructions for because all of the temp part of the plan points to the perm part that is coming. And the perm is the most important thing. So tonight, when you leave, I don't want you to leave focused on the temp part of it. I want you to leave focused on the perm part of it. And God has a very special way of pointing his people to the perm. Now, one of my most vivid memories as a toddler in preschool days was going to the library with my dad. He took me to the downtown library very regularly. And in the beginning, I could not read, and I spent all my time in the picture book section. All pictures, no words. But I could easily tell the storyline, and I can remember laughing in those books are being mesmerized by the pictures or surprised by the pictures or sad at the pictures, all just by the pictures, no words. So in the passage tonight, God is teaching his people his picture book about what this mediator is and what this mediator does. So every detail here, every thread, 
every color, every pattern, every function, all of it points to the perm. Now, really, God is a genius with this picture book. How could someone communicate truth about God the Father, about heaven, about sin, about atonement, about the coming perfect sacrifice through a picture book? Now, God's word for this mediator is priest. Now, in the movie Dead Poets Society, the lead character is going to teach a college class on poetry. So the first day, he has his students open the textbook, and right on the first page, he has someone read this very didactic, technical definition of poetry. And then he has all the students rip that page out of the book. And then he begins to teach them about poetry through a whole different means of categories. So I want to begin tonight. When I say this word, I want you to picture a blackboard in your mind, and I want you to put all the words that come to your mind up on that blackboard. So here's the word, priest. I want you to think, what are all the words that come to your mind when you hear the word priest? Now, I want you to take an eraser, and I want you to erase all of those words from your mind. Because we are going to look at God's definition of priest, and we want to start with a clean slate. So I want you to take out your preconceived notions about it. And we're going to use a lot of C words tonight uh, for our filing cabinet of discussion. So we're going to start here with Exodus 28, and the first two C words we're going to look at are chosen and called. God chooses and calls for the priesthood. This is not going to be a case of you submit a resume and you hope to be chosen. It's not a place for ambition. It's not a place for self-glory. It can only be entered into by God's call and God's invitation. Now, here God initiates the priesthood by telling Moses to call his brother Aaron and Aaron's four sons. Now, verse 1 has a very important phrase that is repeated five times in these two chapters. And this phrase is that God says the priests are to minister to him. In other words, they are to serve God first and foremost. Not themselves, not even the people. They are to serve God first and foremost. Now, Aaron is a descendant of Levi. And God will designate the tribe of Levi as the one of the twelve that's going to serve in the priesthood. And in other parts between Genesis and uh, Deuteronomy, we'll see the calling and the function and the responsibilities of the Levites. But here in chapter 28, we are focused on this special calling inside the tribe of Levi to Aaron and his four sons. There's going to be a high priest, and that will be Aaron. His sons will serve to assist and help him in that calling. And only Aaron, as high priest, could enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Now, this appointment as high priest was for a lifetime. There was no retirement of a priest. And at Aaron's death, Eleazar, his third son, succeeds him as high priest. Now, to explain why, in this case, it was the third son would be a long digression. So let's just say for the time being that the first two were not available. This priesthood system continues all the way 
through the Old Testament period, with the high priest being a descendant from Aaron, and in the New Testament until the temple destruction in 70 AD. Now, our next C word is craftsman. Now the picture book is going to get really interesting because God provides gifted artisans whom he fills with the spirit of wisdom. And when you start reading this, when I started reading it, this is way beyond my sewing abilities. When you read these instructions, it's like a vogue pattern on steroids. So it was crafting was going to take some wisdom, and God gave it as a gift to have this done. Now the next C word we're going to look at is colors. The threads of all of the clothing were to be certain colors, and these colors communicated something to the people when they saw them in this picture book. There was blue, which communicated, and we can pick up from other parts of Scripture, something from the heavens or heavenly. Scarlet, or a deep red, which communicated a blood sacrifice. And then you could mix the blue and the red together, and that would form purple, which represented royalty and kingship. And then there was gold, which communicated deity, but white was also used, which communicated purity and righteousness. Now, these are the same colors that were used in the tabernacle. And so it's the same designer, it's one messenger, God, and it's one message from him. Then our next C word is cloth. The cloth to be used was basically linen. And it wasn't like just single thread linen, but with twisted strands of linen. So think of the percal of your sheets. This is like the best linen. And I just looked up linen to research it kind of as a fabric. It's made from flax, which grew very readily in that area. So it was plentiful to get. And linen was soft. You know, it wasn't scratchy and irritating. And it was durable. It had strength. And it it, uh, was a unique texture that set it apart from all the other fabrics, common fabrics of the day. It wasn't too heavy, and sweat would pass through it. It's kind of like the original dry wick, I guess. And it would wash easily, and it would dry quickly. And if hung up, it pretty much dried without wrinkles. So God had picked this special cloth that was to be used for all of these things. And the linen things were definitely the things that were against uh, their body. Now we're going to look at the clothing items. And so when I read these, it was just hard for me to keep up with what was what and where it was going. So we're going to use the little child's song, Head and Shoulders, Knees and Toes. And we're just going to go through these items by this. So all of the clothing had to be three things. It was to be holy and set apart for use by God. It was to be for glory. And glory is a kind of word that suggests that you're giving value and weight to the goodness and the greatness and the purity of God. And it was to be for beauty. And so God doesn't do tacky. Think of sunsets. So he was, he was planning something beautiful here. So we're going to start with Aaron the high priest. And remember, Aaron is pointing to a high priest that's going to come in the future. So let's begin with head. He was to have on his head a linen hat. It could have been a turban or a miter. And he was to have a very special plate of gold that was engraved, not with washable marker, but engraved on it. Holiness to the Lord. He was to wear it right in front 
prominent on his head to display that he represented the holiness of God. Everything about this tabernacle, everything about these priests and their duties had to be holy. And so this golden crown bore witness that Aaron was that representative of holiness of the holy God. Now, if you think about it, we're reading here in this chapter the instructions that God gave Moses up on the mountain. This is not going to be implemented until the latter parts of uh, or the beginning parts of Leviticus. But by the time this was implemented, clearly Aaron needed a sign on his forehead that said, unholy. But we see God's grace and mercy at this point. This is what he said for Aaron, even though Aaron is not going to be obedient to him uh, very soon. He allowed Aaron to represent his holiness. He allowed Aaron to be able to bring the blood into the Holy of Holies from the sin offering and offer it on the mercy seat. All right, so head, then shoulders. On his shoulders, first he would have a sleeved coat out of white linen that represented righteousness. And then on top of that, he would have a blue robe that was sleeveless and seamless. And the blue speaks of heavenly and the seamless of being eternal. And then there was to be this ephod that was kind of like an apron, And it was made with gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And then the apron had a front and a back, but was attached at each shoulder with an onyx stone on each shoulder. And those onyx stones, those two onyx stones, were once again engraved permanently on the stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, six on one, six on the other. And it was in the order of their birth. And I'm sure it took some craftsmanship to design these. Now, Aaron would carry the names of the tribes into the Holy of Holies before God, and he carried them on his shoulders. In the parable about the good shepherd, it said that he would carry lambs to safety on his shoulders, and it shows power and strength for Aaron to do that, and it's pointing to that somebody's going to come with power and strength who will be able to carry the load of God's children, too. Then, in the front of this, there was a piece, the breast piece, on the ephod that was a nine-inch square of cloth. It was folded double to make a pocket, and it was placed over the vicinity of the heart. And it was called the breast piece of judgment, meaning that judgment had occurred, sin had been acknowledged, and God had accepted the guilt offering no matter what sins they had brought. And it was to have four rows, four horizontal rows of three precious stones in each row. And each one of these was different. Each one was precious and unique. And each one represented one of the tribes and had their name inscribed on it. So Aaron was bringing the tribes as precious and rare, and each of them having a distinct beauty before the Lord when he went into the Holy of Holies by wearing this over his heart. And this pictures the compassion of the priest. Remember, God has told us how he felt about his people. He called them his special treasures. So the onyx and the stones show that Aaron was representing Israel to God in the Holy of Holies. 
And the instructions about how to attach this breast piece were very complex. And when you read that, you see it was clear that it was made to not come apart, not to become loose, but to stay firmly attached. Now, there's nothing else in all of the tabernacle or in all of these garments that was as costly as this breast piece. These were to represent how God saw these tribes as his treasure. Now, this pocket, uh, because the fabric was doubled, it was a pocket, and in the pocket there were placed two objects called the Urim and the Thummim. Now, it is not clear exactly how they were used, but it is clear that they were used to determine God's will. And so how this worked, we're just going to have to wait till we get to heaven and we can line up in the line who wants to find out about that. But a hint, I think, is that the word Urim in Hebrew means light and the word Thummim means perfection. And in Psalms 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. And in verse 8, it says, The commands of the Lord are radiant and give light to the eyes. So however these worked, the thing we can be sure of is that whatever God's will was when they used this to determine it, it would never be against what God has revealed in his written word. And today, we as believers look to his word to determine his will And we ask others to help us look at his word to determine his will. But something is not God's will for your life if it contradicts his word. And then there was like a girdle sash that was made out of the same color of thread and woven very intricately, and it was girded about the waist. And that was symbolic of Christ who will come and take off that sash so he can minister and not be ministered to. So we have head and shoulders, now knees. The hem of the blue seamless robe hit right at the knees, and on that hem there was to be some blue, purple, scarlet pomegranates and some golden bells, and they were to be a pattern where it was bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, all the way around the hem. Now, pomegranates could represent fruitfulness, Because if any of you have had these eaten in your kitchen, you know that there is not anything that has as many seeds as a pomegranate. And joy represented by the golden bells. And the sound of these bells, when Aaron was on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies, would help the people, they would hear it, and they would know he was still alive. Because remember, everything had to be done very exactly, or there could be death occurring. So they would hear that. They would know he was alive, and they could be praying for him because they would know that he was in there doing the priestly duty of putting the blood on the mercy seat, and they were waiting anxiously to see would God accept it and cover their sin for another year. So the sound of these bells brought joy to their heart because they knew that it represented that they could have their sins covered for another year. And I just uh, got to thinking, wouldn't it be fun if we had some golden bells to put on Todd as he dashes around here and does ministry. But it would be a great reminder to pray for him as he ministers, but they'd be very noisy probably too. And then knee-wise, they had this undergarment, which some places in 
versions call undergarment breeches that came from their waist to their knee, and that covered their nakedness. And it was modesty because going up the steps to the altar, they, God did not want their nakedness exposed, exposed. And this was to represent that when they were doing their priestly, priestly duties, it was not to be done in the flesh. It was to be done by God. Now, For their toes, there were no shoes. They went barefoot when they ministered in the tabernacle because they were on holy ground. And then the passage said in verse 2 of this chapter, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for beauty and for uh, glory. And so that holy, that glory, and that beauty for the temp is pointing to the one who's going to come who will be holy and glorious and beautiful. Now, the son's clothing was simpler. It was all to be white linen, and it covered them from head to toes in white linen. It was just four pieces, and Aaron's sons are the ministers and servants of the high priest. So on their head, they had a white linen hat. On their shoulders, they had a white linen coat. And on their knees, they had the breeches coming down. And at their toes, their sash that tied at the waist had very long tails on it. It reached down to their feet. But they had no footwear. They were barefoot also because of the same reason. So Aaron the high priest points to Christ. So his adornment is fitting for pointing to the perfect one coming. And Aaron's sons are the ministers and servants of the high priest. So, so far we have that they're chosen, they're called, they're clothed. It's a busy picture book, all pointing to Christ. But let's look now at Exodus 29. This was the consecration uh, ceremony for these priests. And remember, these are the instructions God is giving to Moses up on top of the mountain. It was to be a seven-day ceremony. And so, actually, when this takes place is in Leviticus 8. And we can read about uh, how it did actually take place when it did. But now, consecrate is another word that you need to erase a definition out of your mind. Because we kind of think of consecrate as like we bring something to God, we lay it on his altar, and we kind of dedicate it to his service. But the Hebrew meaning of the word consecrate actually means you come empty-handed. And God fills your hands so you can leave and go and give and serve to others to draw them to God. So the idea was for them to come empty-handed and to this ceremony, and God would fill them for service. Now, there's uh, five things that happened here. First was a cleansing in verse 4. Aaron and the sons were to come to the entrance of the tabernacle, and right there at that opening into that courtyard, there was to be a washing with uh, water. And Moses was in charge of all this. He oversaw it. So they were going to physically be cleaned from the dust of the desert, but it was a picture of needing to be cleansed of sin. And then they were to be clothed. And so first, Moses dresses Aaron head and shoulders, knees and toes. And they only wore these garments in the tabernacle. They wore something from their tent over to this place. So think of it kind of like uh, bridesmaids dressing at the um, venue site 
for weddings. This is, they would get over there, but they would dress right there after the uh, cleansing. Then there was a complete anointing. This was something else for the head of Aaron. Moses took the special anointing oil and he poured it on Aaron's head. And it represented the anointing of the spirit of Aaron. And it was to be visibly seen and flow down onto his shoulders. In Psalms 133.2 tells us a little bit about that because it says the precious ointment poured upon the head of Aaron that ran down to his beard and down to the collar of his robe. Now, the verb here is not sprinkle like we've had in various places about the tabernacle. It's pouring because this was a full measure of the spirit that God gave. And then after that, there was the clothing of the sons. So Moses put on their white linen garments. And then there were covering sacrifices. They looked good outwardly, but on the inside, they were unholy. They were guilty of sin that had to be dealt with. So the priest had to bring to this ceremony a bull and two rams and a basket with three types of bread, all without leaven, because we remember we've learned before that the uh, yeast can represent sin. And they were to make bread loaves, bread cakes, and bread wafers. And there were to be three sacrifices. There was a sin offering of the bull. There was a burnt offering of one of the rams. And then there was a peace offering of the other ram. All of this took place here in this courtyard of the tabernacle. So let's look first at the sin offering. This was the bull, and a sin offering was put in the category of a non-sweet or a non-savoring offering to the Lord because it was a judgment offering. It was a judgment for sin. And so Aaron and the sons laid their hands on the head, and that was showing identification with that bull as a substitution, and it was a sign that they humbly recognized that their sin was worthy of the consequence of death. They were agreeing with God about that. And then they slaughtered the animal. Now, this seems very coarse to all of us, but just keep in mind that in this place where they were in this time, there were no Tom Thumb meat markets with nicely packaged meat with printed labels. So everyone had to slaughter and dress animals and fowl for eating. So they're not gagging at this scene like you and I would be if we were there. And then they took the blood from after they had slaughtered it, and they sprinkled the horns of the altar, and they poured the blood at the base of the altar. Because even that altar had to be cleansed. It was unclean, and it had to be made holy. And then they took the fat from around the intestines, and they took the kidneys and the liver, and they burned it all on the altar. Now, fat was considered the richest part of the sacrifice. Who knew fat could be redemptive? It's rather comforting to think about, isn't it, that there's something positive about fat? But anyway, then the remainder of that bull was taken outside the city and burned. And so it's not a pretty scene, but sin is not pretty. It is lethal and it is messy. 
And then the second offering was a burnt offering. And it was a sweet savor to the Lord because it was a commitment offering. They took one of the rams. They put their hands on the head again. They identified it as a substitute. They killed it. They sprinkled the blood around the altar. And then they burned that entirely on the altar because it was symbolic of giving your all. Really, getting your hands empty because you were surrendering all to the Lord. And then the third one was a peace offering. And it was a sweet savor because it was communion and fellowship with God. So they took the other ram, did the same thing, put their hands on the head, killed it. But this time they mixed the blood with some of the oil. And they, Moses put some of that on their ear to sanctify their ear to be hearing what God wanted them to hear on their thumb, to sanctify what they did for God, and then on their big toe to sanctify their walk before God. And so basically they were applying the blood to all the exposed parts that the garment didn't cover, their ear, their thumb, and their toe. And this offering was to be shared. Part of it was to be offered on the altar to the Lord and burned, But then part of it was to be provision for the priest. And so this offering also included the bread. So they put part of the ram on the altar and one loaf, one cake, one wafer. And this was a sweet savor offering to the Lord for communion and fellowship. And then the rest of this was for Aaron and his sons. But they even waved across the altar their part. And it was kind of like they waved it over the altar and back. So it was kind of like they were giving it to God and then symbolic that God was giving it back to them. And so if they just went across, that was the wave offering. And once in a while, you'll see it referred to as a heave offering. That just meant they did it vertically rather than horizontally. And this they could eat. And he gave the instructions in verses 31 to 34 how they could do that. But the whole tribe of Levi will have no land when they get to the promised land, and they will own no cattle. So in other words... They have to be provided for, and this was the way God was going to provide for them, was through the offerings. Now, they had to do, every, for seven days, they had to offer this bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. So you saw seven days of atoning and consecration and provision, and Aaron and his sons feasted together for seven days. We will feast with Christ as his sons and daughters. They were the only ones who could eat these offerings at this consecration time. No outsiders. They would eat their portion, and then if there was any left by morning, it wasn't to be eaten for breakfast. They had to burn it at that time and start the New Day sacrifices. And I just want us to stop and think, do we take forgiveness from God and redemption from God and relationship with God lightly? Sin causes a separation that is serious and deadly. And so these seven days picture that for us. Remember that Moses had to wait in that cloud seven days before he entered into glory with God. So God has this prep time, I think, to just teach them to never take it for granted. You don't just rush in here. He was showing them how serious it all was. Now, on day eight, he gave them some instructions for what would occur on a daily basis in the tabernacle. And I call this continuation. Every day, every a.m., every p.m., 
they were to offer lambs. And he says, this is to be continually throughout your generations where I will meet to dwell with you. It was this perpetual blood sacrifice and that the consequence to sin is death. And so from their tents, they could always see, all the Israelites could always see that smoke rising from the altar as a reminder of the seriousness of sin. So here we have had all of these pictures. But all of these pictures were temporary because they point to the one who would come to fulfill what they pictured. So what we see in all these C words tonight, now we're going to talk about the most important C word, and that is Christ. Because Christ is the great high priest of whom Aaron was the shadow. For there to be a shadow, there has to be a reality. And what we see in the pictures is going to help us understand, recognize, adore, love, serve the reality. Now let's begin by looking at Christ's death on the cross because that is where he did his priestly work. Because that is where he gave his blood to be accepted by God. But when we see Christ on the cross doing his priestly work, it was a stark contrast to how we saw this high priest uh, clad. So let's look at this contrast. On his head, Jesus wore no fine linen turban. Instead, he had a painful crown of thorns. He had no head plate that said holiness to the Lord, although he was holy, holy, holy. He had a makeshift piece of wood scratched on above his head, proclaiming mockingly that he was the king of the Jews. On his shoulders, he did have a seamless robe that wasn't torn but stripped away at the cross and gambled for. He didn't have a beautiful ephod on him, but he did have a purple robe that was thrown over his bleeding shoulders and back, mocking him as king. He had no precious gems on his shoulders, only a cross that we deserved. There was no breastpiece with precious jewels on his heart but he had a heart of sorrow for Israel and for humanity's sin, for your sin and my sin. And there was no delicate sound, joyful sound of bells proving he was alive. There was only the sound of pounding nails into his flesh. On his knees, there were no linen trousers to hide his nakedness. Rather, he bore our sins on the cross in naked shame. And as far as his toes, nails were put through his feet, piercing him and nailing him to the cross. Jesus did not have the clothes of the high priest, but he was accomplishing the great priestly work of the high priest by giving his blood to atone for the sins of the people that had come before and looked forward to that, and for who would come after, so that we all could be rightly related to him and able for him to dwell with us and us with him for eternity. So on that day of his death on the cross, we were included in that, and it provided our future clothing. Now, you and I need a priest. I need one, and you need one. The priest we need is the one in the picture book, 
that all of this is pointing to, and his name is Jesus, and he is the only priest that we need. All the pictures, once Jesus came and died, now have words to complete their communication. And so one way we can see how this is explained is in Hebrews. If we look at Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, it discusses how Jesus is the high priest. Now, I'm just going to put, I put up a sampling of these verses, and I'm not going to read them word for word for you. I just want to highlight some things. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, it says that Jesus went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that wasn't man-made, It wasn't part of this creation, and it says he didn't enter it by the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the real, most holy place once for all by his blood, obtaining eternal redemption. And then in verse 26, he appeared once for all. And in verse 28, he sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many people. So be sure you pick up on those words, once, once, once for all. And then Hebrews 10.11 says, Day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties, and again and again he offered sacrifices that could never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because it was complete. Now, the picture book priest, the shadow priest, were never through with their ministry. There was no chair in the tabernacle. They could never sit down. It was never a finished work. But at the right hand of God is our priest and the heavenly holy of holies, and he is interceding for us. He is our priestly advocate for all eternity. His priestly action will be sufficient to keep us in the presence of the Father. So how does all of this connect with us? One thing is context. After you have studied this, as you read in the Old Testament and even on to the New Testament, you're going to find references that before you just skipped over, they had no meaning to you, but because you know these pictures, you're going to have some better understanding of it. For instance, if you read the section about how David moved the Ark of the Covenant and somebody reached out and touched it and they died and everybody was appalled. Why did they die? You will know that. You will remember all those rings and the poles you're supposed to put through it. You will remember how God was careful to give those instructions and to explain it. When you read about how the tribe of Dan decided to build their own altar in their own piece of land and not travel to Jerusalem, we would, and they just created their own priest, you will know, oh no, God said that it was to be this way, and it had to be in this line. And then even in the New Testament, this week in the journey, when I read Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2, it said that there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law who came to Jesus. In other words, they were part of the priesthood. And this is what they said to him. Why do your disciples disobey our tradition? They ignore our tradition. And you know what? That just popped out to me because I thought, oh, no, God didn't say anything about it being their tradition. It was to minister to him. But here they've taken it as their apple cart of how to serve God and how to spin it their way and their ideas. And in my mind, as I read that whole passage that morning, I was thinking, this is 
the high priest for eternity that you are reprimanding about whether he didn't wash his hands or something. And, it's, and I was appalled, but it's because I've been studying this, and you're going to have that ability and context, too, because of studying it. Then it also connects us with this because in the time that we are waiting to join our great high priest in eternity, we are chosen and called to be his priest here on earth. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into light. That's what a priest does. He's calling out of darkness into light. We, as believer priests, are the reality of the shadow of Aaron's son. Remember, they served their high priest and assisted him. And we serve our great high priest, Jesus, and we assist him. We're like Aaron's sons. Now, at one point, um, James and I thought, we thought it would be a good idea for us to come up with a motto for our marriage. This was quite a while back. And what we did is we chose the priestly duties. And so we wrote it out and we said that together as one, rather than separately as two, we want our married life to be presenting people to God through prayer, and then we'll present Christ to people through proclamation. And ever since we did that, that's always assisted us in making decisions. Will this allow us to use our resources of time and money and energy and talent and gifts to present people to God in prayer, and will it increase our opportunity to proclaim Christ to more people? And will it allow both of us to do that together? So we don't do separate priesting. We always discuss what we're going to do, and we join together in. We may not be physically doing it at the same time, but the other one is praying and helping and supporting. And like we decided on Thursday nights because he leads a men's Bible study from Summit on Thursday night, and I come here, so we're both doing priestly things, but we're joined together in that. We can pray together about that. We're doing it on the same night. It helps us be aware. Now, another way we connect with this is clothing. Remember how the garments of the uh, sons of Aaron's covered them so well, just covered them from head to toe. We don't have to be concerned about our clothing because Christ has clothed us, head and shoulders, knees and toes. He has clothed us in his righteousness, and it is the fulfillment and more better, as my kids would use grammar, than all that those priests wore. And that Romans 13, 14 tells us to put on Christ. And then in Ephesians 6, we have the full armor of God, and that covers you head to toe, helmet of salvation, down to shoes of the gospel. And then in uh, Colossians 3, we have a whole wardrobe of clothes that God has provided for us. I keep this little sheet hanging on a ribbon in my closet, and it's just listing all the things it lists in Colossians 3 that's part of our treasured wardrobe. And so in the morning when I'm fretting over what I'm going to put on from the day, I'm reminded of the treasured wardrobe that Christ has provided for me, and it fits right. I don't have to worry about that. It's in eternal style, and it is paid for by someone who loves me very much. And then we're also connected with this because of consecration. 
We are called to that. We are called to empty ourselves of self and come empty-handed to him. Let him fill us and equip us to serve as his assistant priest. Are you presenting others to God, helping them see and recognize that they need a priest and that priest is Jesus? Are you asking the Spirit to give you opportunities to proclaim that Jesus is the priest and that he has completed all of the priest work that is needed so that they, that he can dwell with them and they can dwell with him in eternity? Are there any special jewels over your heart that you carry to the Lord in prayer? Do you need to gird up so that you are free to move and do what he asks? Are you dedicating your ear, your thumb, and your toe to hear and do and walk as he leads you? Are you struggling well to make no provision for the flesh, but to be leaning and be directed by the Spirit? Then we're connected to this by his second coming. In Revelation 19.14, when Jesus in his second coming comes down to the earth, John says that Jesus' entrance will have the armies of heaven following him. They will be riding on white horses, and they will be dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You know who that army is? It's us. It's the believers. The great high priest, completing his priestly work, will adorn us in fine linen, white and clean. I'm really good with uh, fine linen, white and clean. It's going to be getting on a horse that's going to be a real drawback for me, but I'm sure God will give me courage at that point. And then it connects with us because of change. We need to make a change. And that is, when we look at these passages, we need to change our attitude about sin. We need to be acutely aware that sin is not okay. Because we are his tabernacle. God is not up there looking down on us and checking his naughty and nice list twice. He has taken up residence within us. When we ignore sin whether we say it doesn't matter or we just continually do the same thing over and over that we know is wrong, it's like you're writing your own picture book. You're not following God's. You're saying, my ideas are better than yours, God. So I want to encourage you as you study his word to hear and do and walk in his ways. Now, I said that my dad started me on the journey to love books with picture books, but he didn't leave me in that section of the library. He taught me how to read. And so the picture book section of the library was never intended to be my final library stop. Now, if you think about learning to read compared to just looking at picture books, you can see that learning to read is definitely a huge. It's not just an improved picture book or a more complex picture book. It's superior. It's different to be able to read. So the picture section of Exodus was always temporary. It was always pointing to something ahead that wouldn't just be an improvement and a continuation. It would be something that was superior, and it was completely different because it would be for eternity. So Jesus being revealed as the great high priest was not just an improvement on the Exodus priesthood. And Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 tells us this. It tells us that Jesus was not from the line of Levi. He was different from an Aaronic priest because he is a high priest forever in the order of someone named Melchizedek. 
And Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, and he was a priest who met Abraham, and he was without parentage. They didn't list any father or mother or genealogy, and he was also a king. So Aaron came through the tribe of Levi and was a priest, but Christ came from the kingly tribe of Judah, and he is both priest and king forever. So our last verses say, God had a desire to dwell with his people, to be the Lord their God. God has a desire to dwell with you and be your God. You need Jesus, the high priest, for that to happen. The temp has become perm, and ever after this lesson, whenever you hear the word priest, my prayer is that what pops into your mind is the word Jesus, and Jesus alone. Will you serve him? Will you be his assistant priest? Let me pray for us. Father, we're overwhelmed with your great love for us. We can't read these sections without seeing how much effort and trouble you went to to make things clear, to plan, and, Lord, how you did it when people didn't even behave well. And thank you that even when we haven't behaved well, you have loved us and you have been willing to be the priest for us. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone has been coming this year and they haven't yet applied that blood to their heart, that you would just help this to be the evening that they think seriously about that and talk to someone about that. And, Lord, I thank you that you have sealed us forever and you are our high priest, seated at the right hand of your Father. And I pray that you will give us a desire to minister to others as priests and that we will be able to rejoice in heaven and eternity for how you gave us opportunity to serve you well. In Jesus' name.